been a while. It's been a while. I've missed you. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) You don't miss me? Honestly, when you do leave for a day, I miss you, yeah. We've been both kind of busy this summer. Yeah, sorry about the hiatus, guys. We have... We're busy. We both have jobs outside of this. Oh, yeah. And we've (laughs) set it up so that there'll be periods where we're working on the podcast and periods when we're not. And we had took an extended period when we weren't because it's summer and we had thing other... It Honestly, it hasn't been summer. It's been us just working nonstop, to be honest. Like, I have not had that crazy of a summer. Is this what adulting is? I guess this is adulting. I've just, like, said yes to, like, every single possible project that comes my way. And so now I'm just like, oh, true. She's a hustler. <laughs> no, just uh, not a very... F- forward thinker you know uh what have you been up to this summer um working researching the podcast in anticipation for the season we went to hannah's family farm yeah it's not a active farm but it it's like a farm it's a farmhouse yeah it's a farmhouse (laughs) i just feel like sometimes people picture like chickens and stuff if you guys aren't which most of you aren't, uh, from Canada or Ontario, we have a very intense cottaging culture yeah. uh, in this province. We ha- It's a very lush, very massive province, and people from the city love to, in the summertime, go to their second homes in the countryside. In the country. And usually that means pretty rich people going to their mansions on the lake, but in this case, Hannah has a gorgeous, humble family <laughs> farmhouse, and it is so lovely. Thank you. <laughs> my grandma bought it in the 60s, and my dad used to live there, even though there's no plumbing or electricity, and I would not want to live there as a kid. But We have a lot of Onion magazines in the outhouse, and they're they're just a, they're a laugh. I swear it's been open to the same page for probably like 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> I went to a friend's cottage this weekend. The whole thing is just to get friends who have cottages, like yeah. friends who have parents who have cottages and just go to their, just be a really good friend and then go to their parents' cottages. <laughs> I feel like that's with New Yorkers in the Hamptons. Like yeah. you should know someone with a, a house in the Hamptons. Yeah, get that plug. But I, uh, I was in the lake and I slipped on a rock and my foot was just like pulsing blood like gushing blood for so long and now it's like just a cut on the part of my foot that I put the most pressure on and so I'm limping around like someone who has a genuine like full-blown injury little does all of the world know that I have a cut on my foot it's honestly so pathetic yeah but if it hurts it hurts that shit hurts yeah what is a girl to do (laughs) I'm such a baby you don't realize how little you get like injured as an adult but you're always injuring yourself as a kid yeah. Like, I constantly had scrapes all over my body like that I'd cry about every night. I'd oh, always get splinters yeah. from the playground. I, I was walking weird for, like, two weeks because I had a splinter in my, like, heel that I just could not get out until, like, one day I did, and it was huge. It was gross. Oh, that's, like, okay, I had this thing on my foot growing up um, for, like, a, maybe a full year. It was, like, my... It was like a black dot in my heel that was like the heel was swollen in the like pad, like heel of my foot, like the padding You're of the here? foot. It was like the swollen, like kind of bump, like calloused bump with like a black dot in the middle. One day, guys, this is fucked and also disgusting. Sorry. It opened up and a burr fell out. <gasps> <laughs> and we were like, how? My mom was like, how did you get that in your foot? And why don't you remember it going inside? 
sorry that kind of shit <laughs> i don't know why that was the case like i it didn't I hurt either i hate that it's okay it didn't hurt so creepy <laughs> it is creepy it's so creepy kids are so gross like so gross like i just don't remember that happening so this season we wanted to do something a little different um i feel like last season was very um conceptual very conceptual kind of esoteric this season we wanted to go more into the format of storytelling and we thought a really good theme for this season would be paradigm shifts moments in internet history that have changed the course of how we think about things uh, which happened kind of organically on the internet and we're really excited to kick it off and uh this season we're also going to be releasing our episodes bi-weekly they'll still be the same number of episodes is just going to be every other week. Yeah, so you can really get hyped up. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we're going to kick it off with an episode about Gamergate, the mass online harassment campaign and culture war uh, waged against women and femmes in the gaming community under the guise of advocating for ethics in games journalism. This is a pretty dark topic, and there will be mentions of sexual assault in the episode, so if that's something that's sensitive to you, feel free to skip this one. I'm Maya. And I'm Hannah. And this is Rehash, a podcast about the social media phenomenons that strike a nerve in our culture only to be quickly forgotten, but we think are due for a revisiting. Like I said, this season is about paradigm shifts, moments that changed the way we do things for better or for worse. If you like our show and you want to hear more from us, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rehashpodcast, where we have bonus episodes, weekly mini-sodes, and early access to our regular programming. If you don't want to join the Patreon, feel free to rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, because that helps us out a lot. A lot. know about Gamergate before today? I knew that Gamergate was a a thing where a bunch of gamers got mad at women. I don't know if it was for not liking a video game or for having a video game that they didn't like or something and then that turned into those women's lives being ruined online um, by those gamers. But I don't know any of the details. That's awesome. That is, I think, what the general lay person knows about Gamergate. Yeah. And I think that's that's a good amount of knowledge to have about this. Um, I'm about to ruin all your brains and provide you a much, much more detailed breakdown no, of I like the topic. My brain. <laughs> Sorry, girl. It, this is really like a, a red pill, blue pill <laughs> situation. Ooh, uh, the internet is fun for everyone. So... It all began on August 16th, 2014, uh, when a 24-year-old software engineer named Aaron Joni published a very detailed post online about his relationship and subsequent breakup with video game designer Zoe Quinn. Zoe is more or less the protagonist of this story, or the antagonist, if you're on the side of Gamergate, which Mm. we are not, Uh, just for context. (laughs) Shocker. (laughs) Shocker. Just for context, Zoe's pronouns are they, them, so I'll be using that going forward. 
At the time this all happened, they were 27 years old. Uh, Zoe had grown up an only child in a small town near the Adirondacks, who was fascinated by video games from an early age. And when they were 24, they moved to Toronto, which I don't know why Toronto comes up in these episodes so much. Yeah. It kind of feels like a star. It takes a starring role in a lot of internet. It has a role in multiple incel-ass stories. I know, it's very strange. But I do want to say, so we just interviewed Caroline Calloway, and we were both a little disappointed in how much we dunked on our own city. I know, we sold ourselves out. We sold ourselves out, and I think that, I think Toronto actually deserves to be defended. Unfortunately, um, it just keeps coming up in these incel Yeah, and to be (laughs) clear, of course people know what Times Square is in Toronto, because we're like, an hour flight away from New York and we have the internet. Also, like, we are a bit of a cultural hub. Sorry, Drake came from here. And the weekend. (laughs) Well, anyways, when Zoe was 24, they moved to Toronto and took their first workshop for video game developers here. And then in 2013, they independently released a video game called Depression Quest, which is a game that Zoe views more as a piece of interactive art than a traditional video game. You can play Depression Quest for free on a pay-what-you-can model with part of the proceeds going towards the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline because Zoe struggled pretty immensely with depression from a pretty young age. And there were a lot of people who praised the game when it came out for its education-forward design and storytelling, but there were also a lot of people who criticized it for being too political and not fun enough, which was really interesting to me because it really invited questions about whether video games have to optimize fun It just makes me think about what the video game is, like what its role is in our culture. I find video games incredibly stressful. But like (laughs) I've played them, I guess, for enjoyment as a kid. But anything that's like competitive or like there are stakes, it gives me so much anxiety. Like I find video games stressful. I like Nintendogs. There is no stakes there, except maybe you'll lose a dog show. Yeah, my dog did piss me off a lot at the dog show. I was like, come on, yeah. you can do better. I'm like, ugh, I just picked the wrong one. <laughs> yeah, I don't think video games necessarily have to be like adrenaline pumping, like fun optimizers. There was this one critic for Playboy who gave Depression Quest a positive review when it came out. And basically his reasoning was that he was, quote, interested in games that aren't there to make the player feel exceptional. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. Like they, they can have different purposes. I also think like, you know, I think there are people who are pushing for video games to be like understood and appreciated as like an art form or like storytelling medium the way like something film or tv are and part of the argument is that you know film and tv shouldn't just be regarded as entertainment it should be something that like makes you feel things and makes you think about things so i think it works in favor of video games that there's like diversity in the kinds of experiences you'll have i interviewed our friend funky for this episode because neither Hannah and I play video games and we're not very educated about them (laughs) or just we don't have firsthand knowledge as adults about them and I wasn't able to keep this part of the interview in but Funke did really go into detail about why they're drawn to video games and what their role is in their life and they talked about the fact that when they watch movies they feel like they can like immerse themselves in it fully and video games offer them this like super immersive experience and this interactivity that you wouldn't get which gives you a lot of control and agency when you're interacting with the art because you can choose your own pathway and take different steps to move forward and i think that was really interesting 
Depression Quest was a bit divisive, but more or less well-received at the time that it came out. So Zoe meets Aaron Joni on OkCupid, and they date each other for five months before ending things. And then they reconnect when Aaron pleads to get back with Zoe, and Zoe flies him to visit them in San Francisco, um, where they were working. But the trip goes awry pretty quickly. Like, Aaron is not giving, and Zoe alleges that he gets violent with them during a sexual encounter. All this time, he's been kind of, like, harboring theories that Zoe's been cheating on him during their relationship, which when he goes to San Francisco, he expresses this to Zoe, and Zoe denies it. But his paranoia gets worse during the San Francisco visit, and when he goes home, he pens a 9,425-word, highly sensationalized essay with seven full titled sections called The Zoe Post, which I know... (laughs) Who has the time? Like, it's it's actually so long. I'm not kidding you. And each section has its own kind of, like, thematic heading. I cannot believe people read this in the time span that they did because it is crazy. Yeah, and basically it's all about Zoe's personal and intimate life and essentially accuses them of being a manipulative liar. Most controversially in the post, Aaron alleges that Zoe cheated on him with five different men. Most notably that they had slept with Nathan Grayson, who is a writer and reporter for the gaming website Kotaku, which she had done in order to curry a good review for Depression Quest. For a bit, Aaron mulls over whether or not he should publish the post and asks a dozen of his female gaming friends and his own mother if he should post it, all of whom apparently encouraged it. Which... I got this information from this interview from Boston Magazine, and mm-hmm. which actually reaches out to a few of these women who also like corroborate that this okay. happened. What do you think of that? Because I cannot begin to figure out what was going through these women's minds when they were like, yes, this is a good idea. Some women also suck. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, the woman who raised a guy who would write something like this might also hold those similar values. And the women that hang out with a guy like that might also. Guys, sometimes we should criticize women. <laughs> yeah. The women that they reached out to in this article basically kind of reasoned that they thought this would be therapeutic for Aaron to like air out on the internet. And like he had them read it and stuff. It's not like they didn't read this super incendiary piece of writing. I don't get it. Well, <laughs> you know, I I can understand like in therapy, maybe writing down the way you feel about something and then you cl- like put that away. You burn it. And you don't. <laughs> the whole point of getting something out is just getting it out. It's not like getting the like validation of a bunch of other guys. Like this was a hit piece. Yeah, obviously. He also says that he wrote it to warn other men about Zoe, which, uh, sure. So... Aaron's kind of on the fence about this, but after sending hundreds of unanswered emails and texts to Zoe, he sees no other choice but to go public. So he posts the Zoe post on two video game sites, Penny Arcade and Something Awful. But since the Zoe post is so heated, or in the words of Zachary Jason, who wrote the Boston Magazine article, a semantic pipe bomb, it very quickly ends up on the image board site 4chan, which we all know by now is misogynist's mecca. This is when shit hits the fan. The post gets shared on 4chan, which then comes to the attention of this guy called Internet Aristocrat, who posts a video about the Zoe post on his YouTube channel a couple days after it goes up, and he has a pretty considerable following. That video goes viral, and then another gaming YouTuber, John Bain, reposts that video to his Twitter, which has 350,000 followers. 
So it just starts spreading like wildfire from there. Very quickly, Zoe starts getting abusive emails in their inbox, like almost immediately after the Zoe post goes up. They're getting photoshopped pictures of them covered in semen and tweets saying that they should kill themselves. Uh, Someone also edits their Wikipedia page to say that they're going to die soon. Because at the time, Zoe is known to the gaming community. Like, they have this pretty trendy game. They're also doxxed, and they end up having to leave their home due to a barrage of rape and death threats. Only three days after the Zoe post goes up, this company that provides resources and opportunities, allegedly, to marginalized groups in gaming called Fine Young Capitalists, claims on a viral Reddit thread that Zoe had sabotaged their game jam. I'm sorry, Fine Young Capitalists? Girl, this group, I was reading about it and I was like, are you sure? Basically, yeah, they claim that Zoe sabotaged their game jam and then doxxed one of their founders. Do you want to take a stab at what a game jam is, Hannah? Is that like like where a bunch of people get together to play a video game? Like a jam? That's what I thought. I imagine that scene in The Social Network where they're all like hacking at the same time. Yeah, or (laughs) coding. You know, you go to jam. (laughs) What is it? I'm Um, assuming I'm wrong. Unfortunately, you are. Um, A game jam is basically an accelerated game creation event. Uh, So the Fine Young Capitalists had put out a call for people who identified as women to pitch a game that could feasibly be made in six months on a $50,000 budget. The winning pitch, like the person who submitted the winning pitch, would get a percentage of the profits, and most of the profits would go to charity. So it's kind of like a charity event slash an event to get someone's name out there and to like escalate someone to stardom. Right. Apparently, Zoe had perceived the call for game developers to be kind of exploitative because they thought that all of the women who pitched actually had to create that game in six months for free instead of actually just pitching the game. They also found the description of trans women in the call to be very limiting. Zoe allegedly posts about it on Twitter, which causes the Fine Young Capitalist website to crash because all of Zoe's followers then go visit it. But most of the backlash about this was that Zoe had doxxed the founder of the Fine Young Capitalists, which ended up being untrue. Um, apparently, there was this writer from a game blogging website called Destructoid who was the one who had done it. But the Fine Young Capitalists mistakenly thought it was Zoe who had done it. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't walk this claim back for a very long time. And this is a claim that really bolstered the furor against Zoe. Like the, the people that were doxing Zoe were like, oh, well, they did this first. So tit for tat. Like we kind of like the, I think it just justifies, you know, when it's like there's a celebrity who gets canceled for one thing and everyone's like, well, they've been bad all along. Look yeah. at this other thing they did. Like, that's kind of what it was. Like Zoe has always sucked. And a lot of the waters and ideologies in Gamergate are very muddied. And I think this because the fine young capitalists are supposed to be for women in gaming, right? Yeah. So this kind of got people from the other side of the spectrum to also come in and hate Zoe because it was like, oh, Zoe hates women. Zoe doesn't want women to participate in a game jam and Zoe doesn't want women in gaming to get money. Zoe's a misogynist. Zoe doesn't want women to get exploited by a company that's only giving them opportunities when it means free labor. So it isn't. They were wrong about that. All that the fine young capitalists were asking people was to submit a pitch. Zoe thought that that the women who were participating had to actually make the game in six months, all of them all together. Only the winner would make the game in six months. And the whole point was to pitch a game that could be made in six months. So oh, a game okay. that could actually. Right. But would made. the winner be paid? To and make... then the winner would make a percentage of the profits. Okay. And oh, sorry, the winner would make some money and then some of the money that they make goes oh, to charity. Gotcha, so gotcha. She, like Zoe was wrong about it. Okay. 
Um, that doesn't mean Zoe's a bad person. No. <laughs> I think the support and validation from like other legitimate sources kind of emboldened Aaron. Um, who literally admitted to Zachary Jason in that article that he hadn't worried about what would happen to Zoe at all in any point of this. Like, he has zero regrets about this situation. To this day? To this day. Or however when the article came out, I think, which was a a few years ago. Uh Basically, he decides to, I think it was actually a year after, so maybe he regrets it now. Who knows? Basically, he decides to double down, and he releases a bunch more information to the 4chan army, a lot of which includes more theories about Zoe's sex life and alleged infidelity. And I just want to be absolutely clear here on the fact that his allegation about Zoe sleeping with Nathan Grayson for journalistic favors was completely fabricated. (gasps) Nathan never reviewed her game at all. The editor-in-chief of Kotaku actually confirmed this in a public statement at the time. But it didn't matter if it was true, because this information in the Zoe post would trigger an all-out war on women and femmes in gaming. Right. Because it's just confirming that, like, we should be skeptical about their place there anyways, because they're only there to, like, use men for favor. I don't know. Yeah, and these are people, like, this is a very early faction of men going their own way on the internet who believe that women are here to manipulate men like that is what we exist for like and that we have it easier basically yeah right so there are a lot of moving parts here the situation kind of became divided into two factions there were the people who were critical of the abuse against zoe who ended up becoming targets themselves and there were people who were against zoe and the other women in the gaming community many of whom would eventually call themselves members of gamergate there are two main rallying cries for gamergaters One of them was supposedly about ethics in gaming journalism, and the other was about what Gamergators believed to be a feminist conspiracy against the gaming community. So there's the ethics in journalism, and then there's the feminism conspiracy. But we're going to start with the first. I spoke to Funke, who is a pretty prominent member of the gaming community, who was able to provide me some insight on what the vibe was like at the time that Gamergate started happening. This is what they had to say. Hello, everyone. I am here today with Funke. How, how would you describe how we know each other? I think Insomniac crew and yeah. online. But yeah, like just meeting somewhere and then just knowing each other, which I feel like is just Toronto. Toronto's just like... very nebulous. But yeah, our friends... And I think you as well, you're a part of Insomniac. They they run basically a, I would say like a DIY film festival in mm-hmm. Toronto that spotlights like up and coming young, mostly like DIY filmmakers. And it's so awesome. It's been going on for years. I feel like I have seen it since it's like inception uh, when everyone was like fresh out of high school. And now we're all a bit older and now all the youngins are coming in and it's like <laughs> yeah. so fascinating to watch every year, but it's really really awesome if you live in the city you should definitely go see it shout out the crew so funky do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself like who you are what you do i'm funky joseph i'm a non-binary black creative in the city i do a lot of writing um i studied journalism and did a lot of freelancing in the games industry specifically uh entertainment journalism doing critiques reviews 
uh, interviews, news, guides, like pretty much every hat on the, the nonfiction side of games. And yeah, I was doing that freelance for like IGN, Vice, Waypoint, GameSpot, PC Gamer, Paste Games, and full-time for a year at Fanbyte. I've been obsessed with games and the game industry since I was 12. But yeah, that, that's what I do professionally. I'm also a musician and I'm making a, a comic too. Oh my, you wear, you wear every hat basically. So I feel like we can say definitely that you're a member of the gaming community just in the ways that you've kind of like ingratiated yourself in it. And I'm curious, like, what is it about the community aspect that you like? Or do you feel like you're a part of a community when it comes to gaming? I have I'm a part of a gaming community. It is weird to be like, I don't know, just the connotation of being like, I'm in the gaming community feels weird because I don't like the blanket label of a gamer. And I think that, yeah, it's been tainted. It's like the words, it feels a bit foul and it elicits weird feelings. So like I, I enjoy video games. I don't really call myself a gamer. Seriously. I think... It should be just, oh, have you ever played a game? What did you like about that? Did you know that there's more experiences like that? Everyone I knew as a kid played games. Like, everyone had some sort of thing that they were playing. And I, I felt like it was so genderless back then, like, in childhood. And then starting, like, tween teens, it started, the marketing, at least the way I saw it, was super, like, blah, in your face. Like, this is a game. Instead of what was for everyone it got really serious like it felt like you if you're not playing gta or like call of duty then you're not a gamer and i was like those games really scare me like i just don't really want to play those not that there's anything wrong with it but like i just that's not what i was interested in you know but like how would you how would you describe the gaming community back in 2014 the general gaming community was very loud and angry and prideful for unknown reasons like reasons that came into reality out of nothing like just false someone just said something and everyone believed it and the the way of thinking that they proposed was so simple for people to grab on and feel justified in doing horrible things that they all grabbed on and did horrible things but the thing that's fucked up is like it's still the same people, probably. That shit freaks me out. Like, when I'm at an event or, like, even online, I'm like, one of UMS is probably on the wrong side of history. Like, and we'll never know because you're on, like, an anonymous account or, like, whatever, whatever, whatever. And that shit, like, actually unnerves my core. I, I don't know. A lot of this still applies today and on a lesser degree. But back then, it was very, very... People were super overt with their misogyny, racism... And yeah, transphobia. So about 10 days after the post goes up, a subreddit called r slash Kotaku in action, which is dedicated to Gamergate, posts a scoop about a friendship between this Kotaku journalist named Patricia Hernandez and a game developer named Anna Anthropy. Mm-hmm. A couple days later, kind of unfortunately, um, Kotaku publishes a blog post about possible ethical breaches in their company which Gamergators are very happy about. Uh, Mm. They say, we appreciate healthy skepticism from critics and have looked into and discussed internally concerns. 
We agree on the need to ensure that on the occasion where there is a personal connection between a writer and a developer, it's mentioned. We've also agreed that funding any developers through services such as Patreon introduce needless potential conflicts of interest and are therefore nixing any such contributions by our writers. And they had said this because there were brimming accusations about game journalists, like funding developers on Patreon, like giving them $3 a month, but it's still like kind of, I guess, a conflict of interest. Yeah. Funky talked about the way that gaming journalism was a little bit murky at this time and they kind of expressed their own problems with it here they are now the thing that i don't like is that everyone just says games are good and never says when they're bad because they don't want to lose access that's an ethic to me that i feel like is still kind of not good if if there was any ethic being broken in games that's it so is a journalist who's covering a game or reviewing a game like if they would lose access to that game if they had a negative review of it they shouldn't there's an underlying feeling that i've heard people voice like if i if it's too low of a score then it's just like mean but i i don't agree at all one time i gave a game a very low score because i thought it was a very bad game and i got hate maya for months I changed my Twitter at. It's so fascinating to think about games journalism as it compares to like regular journalism or like uh, entertainment journalism where, you know, people reviewing like albums, people reviewing movies, because I feel like it's less personal. Maybe those communities are wider. I don't, yeah, it's just fascinating. Like it feels like such a like niche community that it's like everyone knows who each other are. And so there's like always going to be this overlap. And you're and it's also like very online. So you're like the proximity to the people who are going to read your review is like right there. A, a, a huge sect of gamers who are very vocal, always the vocal ones, were like, it's a two. Fuck this guy. And just like in my DMs and shit. And I was like, no way. You're a grown ass man. Do you feel like Gamergate kind of emboldened these little armies of grown men in a way and like in a way that you're seeing right now? Yes. It truly was people sitting on a pedestal with a megaphone spouting garbage and lies and then being like, but no, guys, it's not just evil mean. Like, we're doing it because of ethics in games journalism. This is when the term Gamergate is officially coined. Basically, this B-list actor named Adam Baldwin uses it as a hashtag on his Twitter of 190,000 followers after posting two videos basically attacking Zoe, which he later defends because he feels that leftists have been bringing too much political crap into gaming. And the hashtag obviously goes viral. Funky also kind of talks about this, this lack of politics in gaming journalism, which I think fed into this type of ideology. Like at that point, games outlets didn't really know what they were and were just reporting on what's the new wacky game out? Like, how's it going? But d just it turned a complete blind eye to everything around it, like the cultural context of what games are. And you need that in your criticism. Like, even if it is a sentence, it ne I need you to be thinking about that as a writer. It was mostly just white men who fell into their jobs randomly and are now, after a couple of years, in senior positions and don't really have to try. Like, they can get away with just being like, all right, Halo 3 is like 10 out of 10 because it's good and it's Halo again. And that's who we're here. Video games are back, baby. 
So do you feel like games journalism is a little bit complicit almost in, in how this all started? I think there weren't any setups to prevent harassment for the women and people of color and, and trans folks who were harassed. But I don't think that's all on them. Also, like, they were just harassed. And, and the people who were in power at those outlets were probably harassed as well. Uh, I do think that in the writing, though, the, the critical thinking on, on a widespread major level wasn't there. Once Adam Baldwin says this, this is when the floodgates fully open up. Like, people are completely out for blood, and anyone who even touches the subject of Gamergate in a critical way becomes a target. This journalist, Lee Alexander, posts an article on August 28th called Gamers Don't Have to Be Your Audience. Gamers are over on the gaming website Sutra, And it leads to a whole bunch of other journalists posting about Gamergate to mainstream news outlets and websites. And I just want to ask here, when you hear the term gamer, who do you see? A guy with a headset on um, in like a dark room with those like light up keyboards in sweatpants. <laughs> Sorry to stereotype. No, but that like that is what the stereotypical gamer is, right? Yeah. Uh, there, there was a gaming convention nearby my work um, and there was a lot of people from the convention who came in and I was like, yeah, you all look like gamers. I see the same thing. What is his vibe? When you hear gamer, what's this guy's vibe? Just based off of things I know, maybe not love, doesn't love women or like maybe doesn't spend that much time around women. Um, maybe a little more introverted, not not the outdoorsy type. And I'm talking about like a gamer because we have friends who play video games. Like I, so many men I know play video games. Sometimes I have to watch them play video games and I'm like, I'm bored. I think this Gama Sutra article is also getting at what you're saying, that distinction between gamer and people who play games. Most of these journalists who were echoing that gamers are over sentiment were saying it in the sense of like getting rid of this regime of bigots in the community, which Gamergate has signaled an end to. Like they were like, we need to put an end to this bigot regime. That is the gamer they were referring to. But Gamergators read this as death to gamers which sparks even more harassment. They read that from an outlet that writes about video games. They were like, oh, they don't like gamers. These guys like don't like the establishment. Okay. Right? They don't like the establishment. And so even if it's a website that's writing about gaming, they don't like that. Okay. <laughs> so Lee becomes a new target for hate and the Gamergators successfully lobby in having ads pulled from Gamasutra. Like Gamasutra kind of gets a little bit decimated at this time. Jen Frank, a game journalist who contributed frequently to The Guardian, is also targeted for supporting Zoe on Patreon. And she and this game designer, Maddie Bryce, then announced that they'll be leaving their jobs due to the harassment. Uh, Jen writes this essay about it where she says that Gamergate was, quote, less about ethics and more about drowning out critics of traditional patriarchal dude-dominating game culture. Brianna Wu, this game developer, posted a series of tweets in October 2014 condemning Gamergate and then ended up finding out that she had been doxxed on 8chan soon after. She also starts receiving a ton of harassment and abuse, and she and her husband, as late as 2019, were still living under aliases. What's so spooky about this is, yeah, like, it's not just that you've made a group of people on the internet mad at you. It's like, it's a group of people who are probably savvy enough at the internet to, like, ruin your fucking life. And we're going to get into what that kind of person is. Yeah. And I think you're getting at something really important here. 
Gamergate is kind of like an intentional terror tactic. Like, Gamergate the word became kind of like Voldemort the word. You haven't read Harry Potter, but near the, in the, I think, final book, saying Voldemort would actually get you targeted and tracked down in the world of the books. I've talked about some of the journalists and developers who were targeted, but other than Zoe, there's one other person who had it, I would say, as bad as they did. Have you ever heard the name Anita Sarkeesian? I have. From you. (laughs) And I feel like maybe somewhere else. Don't Oliver once had people from Gamergate on his show? I can't remember. It was like about online harassment or something. And there were some people involved that were interviewed. Anita Sarkeesian is one of the most prolific names, I would say, from this. She's this feminist media critic who was relatively well known at the time for her website, Feminist Frequency, where she would partner with feminist publications like Bitch Magazine to publish videos and like text pieces about feminist issues in gaming. And she had this YouTube series called Tropes versus Women in Gaming, which was all about the representation of women in popular video games. Um, I'm going to show you a little clip just to give you a sense of okay. what they are. What are your like initial impressions of this? I just showed Hannah women as background decoration part one, which is one of the episodes in the series. Tracks. <laughs> <laughs> like, it. I mean, it's, it's her explaining how like throughout gaming and like gaming culture, like women have always served as ornaments, sexual ornaments. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so one, the videos are kind of represented in like this PowerPoint format, almost like Anita is it, almost in this John Oliver format, actually, where Anita's kind of stands behind different images or beside different images. And then she kind of presents the subjects and the videos are like this. This girl's showing receipts like she yeah. every single video. They're honestly so interesting to watch. Maybe now they're a bit like basic in their ideas. But back then, like that was pretty groundbreaking. Yeah. And the amount of research they do for these videos, like she shows clips from some of the most niche video games and like pulls out examples. She'll slow down the game and show you what the camera is doing with a woman. It's so, so well done. And I don't know. I don't know if you can agree with me, but I think it's like fairly innocuous. Like it actually reminds me of a lot of my earlier YouTube videos. And especially for right now, I feel like it's not saying anything controversial. <laughs> no, it's saying something. This, I brought this up to Maya um, when we were on pause, but it's saying something that is explored in an episode of Life with Derek from like 2005, which is where Casey like discovers like a Tomb Raider type game and is like, this is sexist, but I really like this game. Maybe it's empowering. I don't know, but women shouldn't be portrayed like this in video games. I know those step-siblings wanted to bang, but honestly, that show is really underrated. Like Derek slaps. It's a great show. Yeah, she also prefaces in, I don't know, I don't remember which episode it is or if it's in all of them, but she prefaces basically that she likes gaming and that she thinks that this isn't a representation of all games. Like, she is very leveled in her critique. But I just want to be really clear about how much the internet, like at least in mainstream spaces, has changed in the past decade. Like when I posted, and whatever, maybe I talk about this too much, but when I posted my first YouTube video back in 2018, I had like no idea how pervasive misogyny was on the internet. And like my video was about the representation of women in Blade Runner 2049. And it was very similar to the type of content Sarkeesian was posting a few years before that. And I felt like I was being pretty fair in the video. But the comments were, like, all from men and super vicious. And I remember someone calling me, like, a puritanical cunt, which... Awesome. So awesome. Which I, um... I didn't use the word cunt back then, so I was like... (gasps) 
And anyway, all these comments got a bunch of likes. People kept coming to the video and I ended up having to disable the comment section. And this was like a post me too world. So I'm kind of wondering, what do you think really bolstered the shift towards feminism existing in more mainstream spaces online since then, like since 2014? I don't know, because I remember when you were explaining, like experiencing misogyny on that video, I was like, it's what, like 2018, 2019. I was like, I don't feel like talking about feminism online is like a crazy thing. I was so shocked. Maybe we were in our little school bubbles. I think that's the thing. It's like the same thing as when you just learn about like how large, like the, I don't know, when you realize like there are just as many people who think the opposite thing as you existing. And unfortunately, sometimes they find you. But it does kind of make me wonder, like, was it because the world was extremely misogynistic or was it because of the internet was dominated by misogynists like that they kind of occupied a much louder space on the internet in 2018 i know it's just it's it's, it's just crazy to think about because it's not like 2018 was it, it just feels like it that had already happened and i guess it hadn't i mean i wasn't neither of us were like prolific on the internet in any capacity at yeah. that time like you your youtube hadn't blown up yet so why would we be engaging with people outside of our circles? I don't know. Maybe it's just people generally feel more online since 2018. And maybe, maybe yeah. there was there was once a time where it felt like there was, again, like this stereotype in our mind of the people that were like chronically online. And it was these similar to these gamer type guys. But since the pandemic, I feel like a lot of younger people, a lot of Gen Z, a lot of women are maybe finding more spaces online and that's perhaps had a shift i mean the people who watch your videos and like follow your videos are mostly young women um actually it's pretty equal now but sometimes it it fluctuates depending on the videos i post it's for the girls though but i do think i do think gamergate i'm i'm i have a hunch that it may have played a role in why misogyny was so loud even Mm -hmm. in 2018 which we will get to so Anita had been doing this Tropes versus Women series for about a year, and she was no stranger to misogynistic backlash. Like, she was already a very reviled figure in the gaming community. I'm sure. And I think people were looking for a reason to drag her back into the ring, and that reason would end up being the Zoe post. So in all this Gamergate fervor, this white nationalist, Davis Orini, announces that he wants to make a documentary taking down Anita, which would be called The Sarkeesian Effect. Which was pretty unfortunate timing because Anita posted another video installment to her series called Women as Background Decoration Part 2, which is the follow-up to the one we just watched, literally a day after he announces this, which draws even more attention to her. So Anita begins receiving similar harassment to Zoe as well as death threats, and she reveals a couple days later that she too had to leave her home because she had been doxxed. It was dubious to begin with, but do you think... This is really when the whole ethics and journalism thing becomes a pretty clear straw man. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, why do you think that is? Because it's like so clearly just this woman, Anita Sarkeesian, it's not like she's a game reviewer or reporter, right? She's just somebody who's talking about video games and has really no bearing on like what games do well and what games whatever or like the status quo of gaming she's just critiquing something about them and the critiques happen to be about gender and like that seems to be the thing that is triggering the gamers exactly like she has nothing to do with any of this she's just a woman (laughs) so she becomes public enemy number two 
which is really rough. There was also a lot of hypocrisy in the accusations waged against Zoe and Anita. Like, one of the biggest Gamergate talking points was that a couple years before, Anita had raised a Kickstarter for Tropes versus Women, which had been slated to have a greater number of videos than was actually put out at the time. Mm. So basically, people accused her of misleading her donors and running away with their money. And back in 2012, she was already receiving a ton of abuse for this, like two years before Gamergate happened. Uh, like, again, people were putting slurs on her Wikipedia page and sending her animations of herself being raped by video game characters. Yeah. There was also a beat-up Anita Sarkeesian game going around where the player could bloody a picture of her. But Feminist Frequency had become a full-blown nonprofit at that point with a fully employed team and, like, a lot of expenses. So Anita ended up releasing a breakdown of how they spent their funds, which was on, like, I looked at it, taxes, equipment but mostly on like staff salary and wages, which mm. yeah, turns out you actually do need to pay your employees when you're a nonprofit. So it's actually good that she was doing this. Yeah. Good for her. <laughs> yeah. And I think it speaks to her probably not stealing the money. And yet the Sarkeesian effect documentary guys had raised $8,800 a month for a year to fund their film, but they took forever to release it. It was also super shoddy quality, and Orini ended up making a personal fundraiser to allegedly raise extra money for the project. And then a 40-minute rough cut was posted and quickly deleted from YouTube in 2015, and then a two-and-a-half-hour version premiered to an audience of nine people. <laughs> so yeah, you can probably say that the funds were definitely mismanaged on that side, but you don't see them getting critiques from men on the internet, right? No. Another big argument against Anita was that she had overstated the effects that gaming had on society and culture, which like, okay, yeah, I think violence in video games has probably been overblown in the past to obfuscate other cultural issues. Like when you think of Columbine, for example, people blamed Columbine on video games. Sure. But I, I would say like, yeah, it's not like a d direct line from playing video game to being a school shooter but there might be a pretty clear line between playing video games that are violent and misogynistic towards being a violent misogynist and i don't think that that's that far of a stretch exactly like it's interesting that anita is saying in most of her videos that misogyny in games is representative of the way we perceive women in society and these people are saying it isn't Yet these are the same people involved in a massive hate campaign against women. Which kind of makes you think, no? Yeah. Like. Um, huh. Not, maybe there's like a link here. This might be a link. <laughs> so this all comes to a head when Anita has to cancel a talk that she's hosting at Utah State University. Because they receive terrorist threats from a person who says that they're a part of Gamergate. And that person references the Ecole Polytechnique massacre as an influence. Which, do you want to explain what that is, Hannah? Because it's a pretty big deal here in Canada. Yeah, I mean, Canada, thankfully, we don't have as many um, mass shootings, like events in the last however many years. Because we have gun control here. <laughs> yeah, compared to the States. But yeah, so um, in 1989, at a, a technical school in Montreal, 14 women were killed in um, an engineering program by a man who and was like angry that there were women who had spots and who were like in this men's profession and so he went in and shot a bunch of them but yeah it's uh it's just really fucking depressing to think that 
1989 was so many years before that. 2014. Yeah. Fucking terrifying. Yeah. I think that really terrifying parallel that he, whoever this caller was, tried to draw there speaks to the other Gamergate rallying cry, which is essentially their crusade against women in academia and the whole feminist conspiracy thing, right? In August of that year, right before the Zoe post went up, the Digital Games Research Association, or the DIGRA, which is this major academic organization dedicated to game studies, holds a fishbowl conference, which is basically designed to like encourage a big group discussion that doesn't prioritize any one voice in the room. Um, and this was about issues in gaming culture, especially around diversity. And they set up this public Google Doc so that people could take notes as the discussion proceeded. And a month later in September, after the Gamergate stuff started rolling, because that started happening in August, they noticed that people have started infiltrating the document and littering it with a bunch of hate speech. I got all this information from an article by Adrian Shaw, who was one of the main academic targets of harassment in Gamergate, and who basically puts two and two together at the time that after Death to Gamers articles had come out, the Gamergaters start digging into what they thought to be a feminist conspiracy against gaming. They end up finding the Google Doc, and then they delve kind of further into the academic literature on diversity in gaming, which I guess is their first experience with that kind of thing, which more or less for them confirms their fears. They're like, oh, fuck, the females want gamers to die. It's like a grand vagina cabal. <laughs> this is where this guy Sargon of Akkad comes in. Have you ever heard of this person? I hope you have not, for your sake. No. No, I don't know who this is. Basically, he was this pretty small YouTuber who amassed a huge following during this time, particularly after he posts a video called A Conspiracy Within Gaming, where he says verbatim, the smoky room communist meetings in gaming actually exist. They're just done in the brightly lit halls of academia. And then in the video, he names a bunch of female gaming scholars. Um, so Adrian Shaw, Shira Chess, Mia Consalvo, and T.L. Taylor as the main conspirators against gaming. And he reads the document, the Google document that the gamers had found out loud in the video. I like that this man thinks that academics and scholars have any power <laughs> beyond just like in encouraging thought amongst other academics and scholars. Like, do you, if, if only. I'm like, if only the public could listen to the <laughs> academics once in a while, yeah. we'd probably have a much better society. Yeah, the, the real elites of the gaming world are women who write about it. In universities. in universities like truly insanity so <laughs> the video that sargon posted has about seventy thousand views as of now which is actually less than i thought it would but it's enough he then makes a number of other videos alleging that feminists are trying to take over the digital games research association and thus attempting to influence game development and culture do you think this kind of triggered what I think to be a general wave of anti-academia on the internet, like especially towards women's studies. Cause like one of my old professors who was a relatively young woman found her name on a 4chan kill list after one of her feminist papers was published a few years ago. Holy shit. Yeah. And I really wonder if like, maybe this is where this started. Oh man. I mean, I, I didn't, I've never encountered these two things together like I feel like the only anti-academia like discourse I've seen is either from like super right wing types or from people who've like which we talked about in our gatekeeping episode like people who've complained about like overly academic um language but I, I think that makes sense I mean like 
yeah, if there was um, a part of academia for them to have an issue with, it would be women's studies. Yeah, I feel like even when I started TikTok, because I, for some reason, my TikTok was so right-wing when I first got it back in, like, 2020. And there was so much talk about, like, the blue-haired lesbians and, like, the blue-haired women's studies majors among those groups. I'm like, I'm just, I have no idea, but I, I really do wonder. Again, it's like, women's studies is the least like appreciated or validated field of academia you could be in and this is from no someone funding. who was a women's studies major for like six months um <laughs> arts already within universities is so hideously underfunded like if you looked at the science or like engineering building at mcgill versus the arts buildings you're like wow the arts building is constantly falling apart and under construction not the same no a, a girl that my friends were friends with in university was dating this guy who was like a total conservative idiot, but he was a women's studies major at their university, which is a hard university to get into because it was the only one you really needed like a minimum like 70 percent gpa which i'm like rude because if you've ever read some like if you've ever read shulamith firestone you would know that that shit is not easy (laughs) so a whole number of other people who even deigned to comment on the matter become targets after this as well and the harassment persists it keeps going on everyone's getting doxxed and abused all over the place it may seem like all of this spread across the internet pretty organically but what's interesting about gamergate is that it's really important to note that gamergate's proliferation was actually intentional from the beginning right when the zoe post hit 4chan There was a discussion channel which had formed that decided to organize a targeted harassment campaign, literally saying, we're crashing Zoe's career with no survivors. Do you think this played a role in raising questions about social media platforms' roles in cracking down on abuse and harassment? Because, like, I feel like it's evolved a lot since then. Gamergate has been referred to as a form of misogynistic online terrorism. Mm. What do you make of that? Like, do you think that that checks out? It feels like one of those big instances where we learned about how much real life damage can be done in the online world where terrorism is about making people scared it's like scaring people into submission and like is that not what they were trying to do exactly i think there's a lot to be said about manufactured outrage in this context in this retrospective on Gamergate, Aja Romano, um, who's a pretty well-known writer, yeah. talks about the way that huge companies like Adobe, Mercedes, and Intel took the bait. Like I said, the Gamergaters effectively convinced corporations to pull their ads from Gama Sutra, right? Like, when I say manufactured, I mean that all of this was completely intentional. Like, this was not something where people are hearing about it and they're like, oh, it's like, no, there's a group of people actively trying to destroy, like, obliterate women. Yeah and femmes and it's like well that was what was happening because it's not like they've all organically heard about this these are people who congregate in spaces online where there are calls to action and like there are different initiatives they were doing it's not like wow all these men randomly hate women in gaming at the same time i feel like it's also this thing with the manufactured stuff it's like saying ethics and journalism to get people who are maybe less aware of the misogyny in their courts by by having this ulterior motive, right? Like, they know it's not about ethics and journalism. The people at the core of this campaign know that. But what they're doing is intentionally using this language, this more, like, mainstream language to get other people involved. And that's how it spread. But it was intentional from the beginning. Yeah, I also feel like people on the right 
just generally like to incite conversations about like speech and freedom of expression and journalism and all of that like as ways to like hide their like more insidious beliefs behind like an ideological principle that's more accessible to other people or like more digestible exactly so the majority of this started on 4chan and then it eventually moved to another image board site called 8chan which is kind of like the more radical version of 4chan and basically one of the scholars i was reading toril elvira mortensen talks about the role that image board culture played in gamergate so basically she says that image boards because of their anonymity pride themselves in being meritocracies like in the sense that it's the logic or like logos of an argument in a post that's more important than the person who posted it right or the ethos of the post but don't you still have usernames like aren't there still people who become popular in subreddits or sure forums? but we have no idea who they are where they came from no context like True, they're yeah. just a name and the thing is that since these websites prioritize text and image alone, the most incendiary stuff rises to the top and gets credibility. So Mortensen says, quote, What this meant for 8chan, home to Gamergate, was that sexual or racist slurs were common and swearing close to mandatory. Taking offense was proof of being a new, I'll say F-A-G, I'm not going to say that word, and not able to deal. And offended users were considered too weak to survive the furnace of the chans. And so basically, she characterizes the image boards as being temperocracies rather than meritocracies because they're controlled, quote, by those who have the most patience and time, strongest dedication to their own opinions, and most ruthless ways to silence their opponents, which is kind of going back to what you're saying about the most internet savvy people helming this. They're the ones who are going to be committed. Exactly. Love. Does this make you wonder if this kind of design is what contributes to the spread of disinformation online? Because... I think one of the biggest shifts that happened during Gamergate was the rise of disinformation campaigns Mm -hmm. and the idea of like bad faith actors, which we kind of talked about in the Lindsay Ellis episode. Like the idea that you anonymously put so much information into the pot that it becomes impossible to figure out what's true and what isn't. And due to the nature of social media platforms or image boards, the craziest shit makes it to the top. Like, so do you think disinformation may have started here? Um, I'm not sure because I I don't know like the history of other mass stories like this when we were kids i feel like there was a real like i guess you can use the internet for research but just know that everything you read on there is probably fake fake. wikipedia if everyone was like that shit's fake it's like (laughs) wikipedia is so heavily like i think now maybe i don't know about back then to be honest if it was as valid as it is now kids these days will never know they'll never know um (laughs) but yeah I, i i don't I don't know, but it seems like one of the more notable places where we're hearing about this. From what I can remember, it feels like the most contemporary concept of a disinformation campaign seems to have kind of been incepted here. Well, also, mm. like, the early 2010s is when, like, social media really hit it off. So it would make sense, like, 2014, you know. Yeah, it kind of it kind of makes sense sense in especially in like the cross-platform sharing because i think before like social media as we know it today platforms were pretty like siloed on the internet whereas with the rise of social media you could cross-pollinate almost yeah making it easier to spread stuff there were like a lot of well-known trolls who participated in the chaos of the situation of gamergate like one super famous person was joshua goldberg 
who is this guy who had a bunch of different online personas with like a whole bunch of different ideologies and backgrounds and jobs. And one of them was a profile that he had used in this Gamergate forum, Gamergazi. He was convicted in 2018 for distributing information about bomb making on the internet. God. Yeah, but basically what you need to know about him was that it didn't matter to him what side he was on. What mattered to him was, I guess, the chaos. This is a very mentally ill person to keep it in context, but this is a person who doesn't actually have an ideology at all. Like he's just in there as an anonymous person throwing out what he can wherever he can. And in this case, it was being on the side of Gamergate and adopting the persona of a man who hates women in gaming. And that is just fascinating to me. Do you think this phenomenon is like specific to the internet? Like, is this a new person we created? Well, because where else could you have done that before? I know. Unless you were someone who just wrote letters to strangers. <laughs> pretending. You know, I was, I can't, I don't remember for the life of me what this website was. Some kind of like dress up game, but it wasn't Stardoll. I was on some website as a kid and I had a couple different accounts because I think you could like buy stuff for your thing or like, and I wanted lots of stuff. I wanted, because they give you money when you start. Anyways, <laughs> I don't know. But I had, like, a couple different accounts. And one of them, I was like, I'm an Australian cheerleader. <laughs> I'm blonde. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, this unprecedented place where it's this huge public arena. And you can be completely anonymous, like, me going into Club Penguin and, or, like, into Habbo Hotel and sexting random strangers on the internet <laughs> and pretending I was, like, a 30-year-old woman. like, <laughs> And I was, like, definitely 12. Like, you could do that, but this is, like, someone who did this professionally, which I think is so interesting. Not professional. I don't know uh, if he was getting paid, but it was, like, this is what he did. Literally, he spent all of his time doing this. Maybe it's, like, split. Like well, split. it is kind of, like, split. Like, he is schizophrenic, and I think that contributed to it, but it's so fascinating because he's not the only one, though. Like, he's not the only one who does that kind of thing. Bad faith actors, like we were saying yeah. in the Lindsay Ellis episode, all these right-wing like grifters basically came into the Lindsay Ellis situation and were posing as left-wing people to kind of fuel the outrage. But he's not ideologically driven, you're saying. Exactly. So that might just be, like, you if you get validation, if you, like, are a part of these communities and, like, spread their gospel, so you just get as much as you can by going to different communities and saying whatever they want exactly, you to say. Exactly, exactly. So you don't, you don't always have to even be a grifter. You can, well, you're a grifter, but you're not a grifter of any specific kind. You're, it's not for, like, any greater purpose except, like, something deeply sad. Yeah, it, it is sad. I was reading his Wikipedia and I was like, oh, that's kind of sad. The problem is that people like Goldberg, who, you know, pose as multiple people, led to an overestimation about the number of people actually involved in Gamergate, mm. since everyone except the targets and, like, the big media personalities was more or less anonymous, right? One study found that Gamergate had around 150,000 members in total, but the source of this information isn't available anymore. And then another study found that 38,630 accounts posted to the Gamergate hashtag on Twitter. And another found that the Kotaku in Action sub had around 55,000 followers at the time. But we now know that one person could have multiple accounts, right? So it's kind of hard to tell. And then there was this automatic Twitter blocker, which had been made to block Gamergators on Twitter. Um, and it blocked only up to 10,000 accounts in 2014. And a bunch of those numbers were false positives. So like Mortensen, who was running down those numbers, thinks that this hints that potentially less than 10,000 users actually supported Gamergate on Twitter. And we can't even know if they actually aligned with it ideologically, right? 
I feel like a lot of people would call them a vocal minority based on this information, right? Yeah. But I want to talk about this for a second because I feel like the whole vocal minority thing is kind of a way for people to minimize or eschew the response from, like, creators or public figures who are being harassed. Because, like, if you were to put this one person, let's say Anita Sarkeesian, in a room with all of her dissenters and haters and harassers, it would be so disproportionate. Like, she's one person. Even if it was 10 people, that's too many. So, like, sure, it's not everyone on the internet instigating the abuse, but I really do think it's enough to harm someone psychologically, right? Oh, yeah. I've always looked at the vocal minority thing to be more about, like, okay, for me, as someone observing this, it's good to know that it's not representing as large of, like, a percentage of people who believe this stuff, Mm -hmm. but... Of course, if one person was bullying me, that would suck. Mm -hmm. So, like, it doesn't really matter, like, if it's considered, like, a smaller amount of people who are harassing this person. If they're doxing them, they're doxing them. You don't need multiple people to dox somebody. Exactly. Like, there's still real-world impacts. And, yeah, it, it is good to always keep in mind, like, yeah, the world itself, if you were to divide it up, most people probably would not be a part of this faction. But, like... Yeah, just because hateful voices aren't a majority of the population doesn't mean that there aren't enough of them to, like, sway a cultural moment or to, like, inflict harm on other people, Mm. which is clearly what happened with Gamergate. I just want to go into the legacies of Zoe and Anita, who I would say are the biggest targets of the hate campaign. Zoe and Anita do a number of media appearances and talks with regards to their experiences as victims of online harassment. Zoe publishes a memoir called Crash Override, which is the name of the support network that they founded with their partner. And the memoir is called Crash Override, How Gamergate Nearly Destroyed My Life and How We Can Win the Fight Against Online Hate. Not the catchiest title, but (laughs) they also speak to a number of media publications in the years since for interviews and they do a talk for XOXO Festival. Anita ends up being featured on the front page of the New York Times in October 2014, which is huge. She also does a talk for XOXO as well as TEDx and she makes an appearance on the Colbert Report. I didn't know about the John Oliver thing, but it maybe she did. It actually wasn't her. I when I you showed me the clip, I think maybe it was Zoe Quinn. I don't know. It was somebody who was involved. Someone involved. Yeah, they're going on these like mainstream outlets, basically. And the John Oliver thing was a couple years later. A couple years later, yeah, I think. Um, but this is like even like they've been doing this for years since Gamergate. It's not just the year it happened. And because the two of them take matters into their own hands and attempt to control the media narrative around them or speak openly about their experiences, they are widely harangued to this day by Gamergaters for being, quote, professional victims. People have accused them of, like, overstating the abuse and milking people's sympathy in order to profit from the situation. And this is basically what dominates the conversation around these women today. Like, if you were to look up Anita Sarkeesian on YouTube and you were to come across, like, any sort of video about her... Most likely, majority of the comments will be like, this woman's a professional victim. Can I just say, if you are somebody who is harassed to the point that, like, you might consider changing your name, changing phone numbers, moving addresses, and are harassed for something that you were doing as part of your job, what other options do you have to, like, make a living but to make the most of what that situation's giving you? Like, I hate that. It's like, what else is she supposed to do they've been forced into a corner where this has to be their lasting legacy like if you go to anita sarkeesian's wikipedia this is like the majority of the wikipedia page like that sucks the nice thing is she is on nebula which is the streaming service i'm a part of and i think that's really awesome 
I also find it like going back to that hypocrisy thing. I find it ironic given that like Gamergate's entire MO was to characterize gamers as somehow targets of angry women. Like they started a fucking culture war about what is literally games, which seems like a lot of whining to me, doesn't it? But these women are professional victims. Are we saying that we want the people behind Gamergate to have some self-awareness and reflection? (laughs) Are we holding them to that standard of emotional intelligence? Definitely not. Like, (laughs) we're not expecting it. I just think we should should maybe shine a little bit of a light on it. Sounds like they have some thinking to do. They have some thinking to do. (laughs) And, like, many of the people who were spearheading the Gamergate campaign basically made a name for themselves off of the situation and, like, built a career off of it. Like... Sargon of Akkad has almost a million subscribers now, which is a huge leap from where he was at when he started posting about Quinn back in 2014. And he monetized a lot of those videos and was definitely making a penny off of them, especially considering that his production value is horseshit and he posts all the time. So it's like the fact that Anita Sarkeesian trying to like pick up the pieces of her career by like trying to take control of the situation and have some agency and have a voice being like framed as like a grifter or like a professional victim is so god she actually feminist conspiracied this into a lucrative job opportunity this whole gamergate was all her doing because she wanted lots of money she planned it from the beginning she knows what she's doing did the milo something something come from oh yeah yeah. i was waiting because i was like i swear this is the other thing i know about gamergate we'll get to it okay um So Gamergate didn't have a distinct ending. It just kind of like fizzled out a little bit. I think with the mainstream media outlets criticizing it so openly, Gamergaters weren't as powerful as they were in the initial days. But like the harassment never fully stopped. Like Anita Sarkeesian's name is still obviously, as we were saying, has that sort of toxicity that kind of airs around it. Brianna Wu's literally talked about how she continues to lose at least a day each week explaining the internet to the police because they won't take threats against her seriously. And in that Boston Magazine article, Zachary Jason profiles Zoe's court case where they're like attempting to explain the harm that Aaron caused them to a judge. And the the judge just doesn't give a fuck at all. And Aaron continued to post information about Zoe for like a super long time without any sign of stopping and the judge refuses to punish him. This article is obviously old, but... Still just goes to show. Yeah. But do you think, like, if we're going to consider this a form of online terrorism, do you think it should be treated as such by the law? Like, do you think there should have been legal consequences for people like Aaron or the Gamergators? I know we're really both critical of the justice system and retributive justice, so I'm just... I'm curious to know what you think, like, the response should be from, like, authoritative bodies on something like this. Well, was it Gamergate? Was that one of the situations that sparked the kind of push for the need for like legislation around like online harassment and doxing. I think this was a very early, yeah, an early movement towards it. And the concept of like social media platforms having to crack down. Cause it didn't really exist yet. Like, I mean, how was the infrastructure supposed to be in place for this kind of newer mm-hmm. sphere cracking down against harassment? I mean, stalking is a crime. I know. And doxing, I would say, qualifies as a form of stalking. Mm. Wouldn't you say? I mean, I would say so. I yeah. think doxing should be a crime. So, yeah, I would say, I mean, I mean, I think stalking should qualify as a violent crime. And I think that doxing as an extension is violent or it's like 
conspiracy it's premeditated yeah Yeah, that like i don't really i think there should be some sort of consequence i don't know if like prison necessarily but definitely something to scare people a little bit maybe limit someone's access to the internet yeah put on the child lock so i've talked a lot about the players in the story who were just kind of like either randos or people who became famous only because of this but there were also some pretty big names who got involved on the gamergate side of things too and they were mostly people who were famous in the right-wing sect of media. No obviously. way. Wait, twist of the episode. <laughs> Plot twist. So Christina Hoff Summers is one of them. She's this prominent anti-feminist who also has nothing to do with gaming. She posted a YouTube video called Our Video Game Sexist. And she became known amongst the gamer gators as Based Mom, which is so fucking gross. I'm so confused about what based means. Um, <laughs> Milo Yiannopoulos, who we all know by now is an alt-right pundit and writer from Breitbart, published a summary of the situation to Breitbart called Feminist Bullies Tearing the Video Game Industry Apart. This guy has, again, nothing to do with gaming, but now he would be one of the loudest figures in the movement. At one point, he claimed to have access to this game journalist email list, and he published a Breitbart article about the so-called gaming journalism elite, who he decided had apparently emailed each other about wanting to do something to support Zoe, which he had framed as a conspiracy against gamers among gaming journalists, which is actually just probably them being like, this is an unethical situation happening. Yeah, and also (laughs) probably wanting to clear the names of gaming journalists exactly and and be like against false information and i would i would want to separate myself from the gamer gators gamer gators yeah i knew milo was involved but i couldn't remember how oh yeah he he basically like he is another person who kind of blew up because of this true okay and i think milo yiannopoulos's kind of like rise to fame during this time is part of a general growth of right-wing politics and populism on the internet there's actually a lot of speculation that gamergate gave way to trump being elected and like QAnon becoming a thing and other kind of like populist conspiracy type right-wing subject matter on the internet becoming louder what do you think of that makes sense i mean it almost like shows like a blueprint to how you can um organize as men and and get things done and (laughs) men used to go to war and now they argue about games on the internet (laughs) but really and then like yeah the idea of like a disinformation campaign and figuring out like how to utilize social media to your benefit makes sense i mean yeah because it happened like right before the election So Aja Romano has this article that I referenced earlier, and she says that she talked to this journalist called Robert Evans, who specializes in extremist communities. Yeah, I know Um, Robert Evans. Yeah, he does Behind the Bastards, the podcast. And he described Gamergate to her as, quote, partly organic and partly born out of decades-long campaigns by white supremacists and extremists to recruit heavily from online forums. So it's like these people going into forums on the internet full and this is kind of going back to the gym salts episode even right like full of like lonely listless men and like giving them a purpose right like and even the language is so militarized in gamergate right like army was used a lot for example and i think that kind of plays into it like it's like giving men a purpose and creating a folk devil out of women basically right yeah it's almost like a moral panic in a way no i mean i i would say so i think there is a moral panic around feminism on the right 
And Romano has this quote. She says, The Hay campaign, we would later learn, was the moment when our ability to repress toxic communities and write them off as just trolls began to crumble. Gamergate ultimately gave way to something deeper, more violent, and more uncontrollable. But I don't think it's all bad. Fungi says, when I talk to them, that it obviously has had negative effects, right? And we've gone through these. But Gamergate has had positive effects as well. And... I'll let them close off the episode. I hope people are more intelligent in shutting these things down and asking a question like, okay, what do you mean ethics and games journalism? And then hearing their answer and then being like, oh, that's bullshit. On the other side of things, the journalism side of things, I have seen way more outlets that are uh, overtly for people of color and women and uh, trans folks and yeah, aren't shy about that, really put that into their reporting, into their coverage, and hire people from all of those communities to cover and to lead their sections. I think of Polygon, I think of Vice Waypoint, um, I think of, yeah, Fanbyte as well, have, have really put that into their coverage and inspired so many people, like people like me, like reading Polygon and, Fan, and uh, Waypoint, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I wanted from, from, from games media, like, we're people. We're playing games. Why are we just removing the people aspect of that? We're still here. Like, we're still dealing with the world and, 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 and all of the horrible things and the great things. So let's talk about how that connects to games and why are we ignoring that that is real. There were already, like, political games being made, like games that challenged the Gamergate way of thinking and games that were like, hey, no, I'm not a white man and I'm here and I play games and I love them and I have a story to tell. So those games became more prevalent as well. Uh, you see them on bigger scales. Like they used to be just maybe on itch.io and they still are, but you also see them on like the PlayStation Marketplace or Steam on PC or Epic Games or Xbox, Game Pass. Like it, there's more avenues to create games and there's more publishers that want to tell stories of people that normally don't normally get their story told. Um, so that in turn just makes the scene of stories more diverse and more creative because now people who've never got the chance to make something in this format can make something and people have made some wild, cool things that make me so happy. Uh, just people being like, that was horrible. It should never be like that ever again. And, and people who like, were stamped out or had their voices muffled and, and felt like they couldn't really speak or belong in this community are just now doing everything that they can to feel welcome and to welcome people into the space and i i think it's a beautiful thing to come out of such a horrible horrible time period that harassed so many people and, and pushed people out of the industry like stopped people from making games some really great game creators were just like yeah i'm done i don't ever want to do this again and it's twisted so it's weird because it feels like the gamer gators were kind of like successful in like pushing people out and they kind of got what they wanted there but then they were unsuccessful in the long run because it actually had the opposite effect and diversified the gaming community made it more like layered and multifaceted and self-reflexive do you think like because you know you were reticent to call yourself like a gamer at the beginning of this and i think that that is very much like the unfortunate gamer kind of soiled the gamer identity how do you think the gaming community can like shed gamergate we shouldn't forget it um because it's important to to like have conversations like these and, and talk about like what happened. But I think it just starts with being more open to people who don't normally play games 
and being less inside jokey. I, I think that would make the community healthier if people picked up games more often who don't normally play games because then they'd find they have emotions, they have feelings about this and they're like, oh, I like how this was done. Oh, I'm going to play more of these or I don't like how this is done. Like, why is this done like this? And why isn't anyone talking about how this is done poorly or like done in a way that alienates someone or X, Y, Z? Like, I think we just need more viewpoints because so many of the same voices that have just perpetrated for so long so shaking that up and it's already happening right now as we speak um but just continuing that and doing that more uh, openly rehash is hosted by hannah rain and me maia it's produced and edited by me and the intro and outro song is produced by our talented friend ian mills thanks for listening 